Paul Young, how you doing? Good. Doing well? I was talking specifically to Paul, but I did want to know how you guys are doing too. Uh, good to see you here, Karen. Um, uh, Pastor Nick will be back among us next week. Uh, he'll be preaching here on uh, Easter Sunday. Um, he uh, is having a, a well-deserved uh, break with his family. And uh, so just pray for them as they rest. And pray for me since I left my sermon over here in the corner. <laughs> That's always a bad start to a message. Um, this Sunday... Uh, last Sunday, you remember, I talked a little bit about this small group I'm starting to train people to become small group leaders. I still have a couple slots available if you're interested in uh, getting trained to become a small group leader. We certainly have the need and opportunity. Um, so on April the 13th, a Monday, we'll start 10 weeks. Uh, we'll start in my house. My wife and I will be glad to, to greet you. So if you're interested, fill out the connection card, put it in the info desk, and we'll be glad to see you there. Uh, Good Friday service, 1 o'clock. Last year, this place was full. We uh, will have Blackhawk uh, combined band with us and Blackhawk playing. And you'll have a chance to hear Vince Pieri again. So if you can, if you can come on out uh, on that day. Uh, this week we're going to look at Acts 1 through 4. I'm going to preach a topical sermon that kind of sums up how the Holy Spirit builds his church. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at. We're going we're to look to see what the Spirit specifically does and how the church specifically um, cooperates with the Spirit as he leads and builds the church. Um, nobody wants to belong to a dead church. Amen? Nobody wants to belong to a dead church. Tom Rainier is the president of Lifeway Christian Resources. He, this is one of the nation's largest Christian publishers. <clears throat> a church brought him in to consult with him. Uh, consider this, you have been a church that, that has thrived. At your peak, you were at 750 members. And over about a 15-year period, you slid from 750 to 83. And you were resistant to getting some help, but finally, just out of sheer frustration and at coming to the end of your rope, you reach out for some help, right? And so they, they bring Tom and his ministry team in to do some consulting. And after a two-week engagement, uh, they give them some recommendations of some things that they sh should seriously consider to change. And, but the people just weren't willing to embrace it, right? So they didn't take it at all. A few years later, this church closes its doors, and one of the members, in fact, the member that had paid to have Tom come, uh, sat, went to Tom and sat down with him. He said, listen, can we do an autopsy on this? You know, I spent my whole life at this church. I gave, you know, all of my best years. My kids were raised at this church, and I, I just hate to feel like there was nothing I could learn after investing my life in terms of helping me understand why this church died. What used to be a, th a thriving and vibrant, powerful church that preached the gospel, that people come to faith, how it got to a point of having no power and close the doors. And so they sat down and they came to these conclusions. Number one, they said there was no evangelistic emphasis at all. Uh, when the church loses its passion to reach new people, when there's no new folks coming in testifying about coming to Jesus, 
that's one of the signs that a church is on decline. The second, the church had no community-based ministries. Uh, there was no attempt to reach the community, no ministries to focus on the, this area, no investments in church resources, no outward focus at all. And thirdly, the church had no clarity as to why it existed. There was no vision, no mission, no purpose. So um, endure us sometimes, like when, when Lisa will say something, things like this in her announcements. We want to try to connect you to what the big vision of the church is. We want you to explain how you can connect and grow and serve. Because certain churches have no clarity about why they exist. Uh, the members idealized another era. At the end of the church's history, all of the, the active members were over 80, 67 years old. And as they thought back, they always thought back almost to the point of some kind of idolatry to a period in the 70s that was their heyday. And for them, they saw going to the future as going back to the past. Uh, the members had more arguments about what they wanted. So as the church continued to decline towards death, there was this inward focus on what we want, and their business meetings became caustic and acrimonious. Then when you look at their spending, next point, the percentage of their budget for members' needs was up at, at 98%. And so the money was spent all on what we, you know, small church needs, right? And how this manifested itself was that they, they saw their pastors as chaplains, community chaplains. They just went from house to house meeting needs as opposed to being shepherds who are called to oversee the Lord's mission. Chaplains versus pastors that are missionary. That's another sign of a declining church. And the last one is that the church rarely prayed together. In the last eight years of their ministry, the only times they had corporate prayer was just a couple of scant minutes uh, during the worship service. No other prayer meetings, no reliance on God. And when they did prayer, the prayers were about their family needs and physical needs. So these are some of the warning signs of a church that is dying. But that's not what we see in Acts chapter 1 through 4. What we see there is totally different. Here we see the birth and activity of the church of Jesus Christ. This church is thriving. This church is vibrant. This church is preaching the gospel. This church is courageous. This church is led by the Spirit. And it wasn't just that the apostles that were doing things. It was the disciples that were there at Pentecost, and it was those new converts were all lined up under the apostles' teaching, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, doing God's will. And what we see is that I think that there's a program that happens here. There's four important things in terms of from Acts 1 through 4, we can step back and we can say, these are the things that the Spirit focus on, focuses on to build the church. One, he communicates the very words that the church live by, lives by. Two, he anoints or baptizes every member that, that every person in the church is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes somebody a member in the body of Christ. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. I can't do that. 
The Holy Spirit does that upon a confession and repentance. Third, he empowers all the church activities. Everything from the usher that greets you at the door to the pastor that preaches and everything in between. Every, everything that you do in your homes and in your communities, the, the Lord wants to lead and guide and empower all of that in Christ. And fourth, he provides additional power when needed. The scriptures say that we are filled with the Spirit. This is something that we see a lot, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. At the very point of need, God fills, provides an additional source of unction and power to do specific work. So those are the four things that a, that a dynamic church does. And when a church cooperates with the Spirit doing those four, you will see these three things. You will see a church that is unified, in truth, you will see a church that is generous, not just towards internal needs, but also to the missional work of the church. And you will see a church that is evangelistic, that really gives its message to the world. So um, this, I want to say this, that uh, I've been a Christian a little bit over 25 years. And what I've seen is that when people join a church, especially in large numbers, they want to join something that is alive that is moving, that is growing, that has vision. And so what I want to do this morning is help you kind of see, you know, what God is doing in a church like that. Uh, if you are a newer person here, you're thinking about a church, you're thinking about choosing a church, I want you to really pay attention to what I have to say, because I want you to consider and assess High Point Church on the, on the things that I'm preaching about. All right? So let's go with it. There, these are the four things that the Holy Spirit does in terms of building a church. The first thing is the, the Spirit provides the words the church lives by. The Bible teaches us that God, the Holy Spirit, moved men to write the words of God. These men were the mouthpieces of God. That is, God spoke his word through them. Now, I've got just a couple of examples of this, but there's about five. In between chapters 1 and 4, there's five or six instances where it's, the Scripture clearly says the Holy Spirit acting on behalf of God put the words of Scripture in the mouths of the prophets. And that's how that we have Scripture. There's just two. Acts 1 and 16. The Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. Acts 4.25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And so what, there's a key word that the Scriptures will use when it talks about this process by which God gives us his revelation. It's called inspiration. Um, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's interpreted here as God breathed, theonustos, God's breath. And so what we're saying here is that the, how Scripture comes to us is that God, through the Holy Spirit, imparts his knowledge and wisdom to the prophets, to the speakers of Scripture. So I, what I want to say about this and why is this important is because the Word of God is life to us. Well, Lloyd, what do you mean? What do you mean the Word of God is life to us? Well, I want to say three specific things, how the Word of God is life to the church. First, the Word of God is the source of our theology or our study of God. By the Word, not by people's opinions, 
not by other sources, by the word, we know who God is and what God is like. That's the core source of our understanding about God. And you can tell when you consider the various kinds of churches that it really is important to know who God is and what God is like. So our theology comes from sight. Second, the word of God is the primary source of a, of a believer's philosophy. That is to say that our rational investigation of the truths and principles of being, of knowledge, of conduct begins with a good understanding of the word of God. So we don't start philosophizing until we understand the word of God, the very source of being, the very source of truth, the very source of purpose comes from our knowledge of God. So the word is our philosophy, right? And thirdly, the word of God is our sociology. Through the word of God, we learn how to relate properly to each other. And we learn how to relate properly to God. It's our sociology. The, the worldview of a Christian, the way in which we explain reality, is explained and shaped by the word of God. So when you, when you hear people talk about Christian worldview, what we're, we're talking about is that the word of God shapes how we think about theology and sociology and philosophy. Everything that we, how we work, how we live, is framed by our understanding of the Word of God. And that's why it's important for us to huddle. And it's important for you to go to David Miller's class and talk about how we think about ethics and how ethics applies to us in the medical professions, how ethics applies in the legal profession, how a Christian should think godly about the normal everyday things of life. Really important. So how should you respond? How should you respond to the Word of God? Well, I think you should love the Word of God. You should seek the Word of God. You should, you should try to do what the Word of God says. Uh, last week after service, um, young man, I, I, actually I see him in the, in the congregation today. Uh, I was, w went to talk to a few people, and whenever I'm trying to talk to people after service, I pay attention to how long the line is. Because whoever's waiting in line, they're waiting there for a reason. They got something important they want to say. You know, sometimes it could be, you know, they want to get to know Christ better, right? I saw this person waiting, and they had their Bibles open, right? And after five or so minutes, I, I finally got to him, and he said, hey, listen, Lloyd, you talked about this chapter and this particular verse, and I want to know what it, what it means. Help me understand what it means. And I hope I was able to bring clarity to that. But all the while I was saying to myself, this is awesome. This is awesome. This guy wants to know what the word of God means so that he can understand it, so that he can do it, so that he can live it out, so that he can help other people understand the word of God. He can be a better witness. That's the response that we want to have to the word of God. The word of God is exciting. It's, it, to, to get a, your, your arms, your mind around a new revelation, man, it's like a, it's better than a bowl of ice cream. It's awesome. <laughs> so the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he gives us the very word that we live on. He's life for us through the word. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit anoints every member of the church. Now, a Christian, simple definition, is a person who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He believes Christ died for our sins. That's why I like that song that they sing, the I believe, 
that helps us walk through some of the earliest formulations of belief. That's why I love that song, because in that song is the basics of our faith. Well, what does a Christian believe? He believes that Christ died for his sins, that Christ was buried, that Christ rose from the dead. The Christian has repented from their sins and accepted Christ as Lord. And the Christian has received the free gift of the Holy Spirit. I like the way Paul talks about this. When I try to explain to my children, I try to help them see the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in them. The reason this is so crucially important is because of this text. If the Spirit is not in you, you don't belong to Jesus. You, whoever, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Jesus. So it's vitally important, young people, teenagers in Derek's ministry, that you recognize that there was a point in time when you repented of your sins and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, and that you recognize the Spirit is doing a work in your life, that He's real, that He's helping you understand the Scriptures, that He's helping you pray, that He's convicting you when you go this way, when you should go that way. It's really crucial, young people, that you understand that the Holy Spirit lives in you. That is evidence of your salvation. That is evidence that you are Christ's kid, uh, son, child, daughter. So this begs the question, do you really belong to Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins, confessed him as Lord? If you haven't, today is a great day. After service, I'm going to pop in with Steve Tadovich. You might be knowing that you, you know, you've been, these questions about Jesus have been in your mind, and, but today is the day of salvation, so come over and, and visit with us, and we'll gently explain to you these, these things more completely. And then if you have accepted Christ as Savior, well, when are you going to be baptized as a believer? When are you going to identify yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Amen? I can't, it's okay for me to talk about being married, but I've got to be next to Debbie. I've got to, I mean, there, there's got to be some evidence of a connection, right? And Pastor Nick has talked about this in terms of the, the wedding ceremony, that the ceremony is important in terms of me professing, confessing my love for her before God, right? In the same way, baptism does that for you as a newer Christian. It confirms that you are serious, that you're confessing Jesus, and you want to walk with him in unity, right? So that's the second thing, is that a Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So, so the Spirit gives us the Word. The Spirit makes us a Christian by putting His hand on us, by anointing us. And the Spirit empowers the way that we live. All of our activities, where everything that an ordinary Christian does is empowered by the Spirit. Sometimes it's easy for us to see and to believe and to receive that Peter could preach these dynamic sermons in chapters 2 and 3 
that by faith and calling on Jesus' name, he could heal the lame man. And in chapter 2, where all the disciples began to speak in foreign languages that they did not know, we can see those things historically. But what about the everyday, ordinary work that the Holy Spirit does in our own lives? What do we think about these miracles? Here's what I think the risk is. The risk is when we think of the understanding of God's Word and the daily obedience that you need to do in terms of raising your kids, in terms of going to college, whatever work that you're called in, the risk is that you think that you don't need God for that. It's too small. I can do that on my own. I got this thing. I got it. I, I don't need you for that, right? But the truth is, when you don't rely on Christ for your basic understanding of the Scriptures and day-to-day -day obedience, you are not walking in the Spirit. And if that's not happening, one of the major miracles that ought to occur in every Christian's life won't be so easily discernible in your life, and that is life change. We, we just won't see life change. I kind of like the way D.L. Moody talked about this. Spiritual power. Moody was at a revival in Milwaukee, and his ministry was based in Chicago. And um, at a break between his speaking engagements, a question was asked to him. This was the question that was asked to Moody. He said, do you have enough grace to be burned at the stake? I mean, has God so transformed your life that you could willingly submit to being burned at the stake, kind of like how Jesus was crucified? Could you, could you do this? Here's his answer. No. He said, because I don't need it. What I need right now is enough grace to live in Milwaukee for the next three days. <laughs> Check that out. In other words, God is going to give you grace to finish college. That's the grace. That's the spiritual power you need. God is going to give you grace to keep running that business, staying connected to your wife, raising your grandchildren. God is going to give you connect the grace to do the work that you're involved in right now. And as you obey him, as you understand and as you follow his word, and, and, and when you run against these obstacles, God is going to give you more power to deal with that issue. Amen. Amen. If I knew all the problems and challenges of getting married, then I, then I would have I been like, no, I don't have grace for all of that. But, right? but, but, but once I said I do, and once I committed to raise my children in Christ, I get the grace I need at the time the, the, the difficulties come. So what I'm saying to you is walk, and then the power will follow you. you. The power will catch up to you as you need it. Some of the missionaries, if they could come up here, I've, I've, heard, I've heard them come and talk about how they didn't know how God was going to make it so that they could make it from these closed countries. And, but the grace just met you there, Bob. The grace went, caught you from town to town because that's how the Holy Spirit works. He doesn't need to give you power when you're doing nothing. When you're not obeying, you don't need any power. But once you start doing God's work, you need his help. He knows it, and he's going to give it to you. The power of a changed life. Chuck Colson gives this quote. 
Remember, whatever good you can do for yourself, what God can do through you, if you give him the opportunity, is far greater. Chuck grew up in Boston. He was born in the 1930s. Uh, he was very idealistic. He wanted to do great things. And um, his father was an immigrant from, I think I want to say it's Sweden. Um, he was an outstanding student. He went to scholarship, he went to college at Brown on a scholarship. After college, it was the Korean War. And so he joined the Korean War. Um, he was a Marine. Uh, he did so well that he became the youngest captain in Marine history up to that time. This would have been the mid-50s. After doing his tour there in Korea, he came out, became a congressional aide in Washington, D.C., and went to law school at now at George Washington University. After law school, he was bold enough, he started his own legal practice. In the course of starting his legal practice, he got rich, met Richard Nixon. Nixon saw the brilliance on this man and that he, he was a can-do man. In 1968, Richard Nixon was elected president, and his special counsel, the guy who office right next door to the president, was Chuck Colson. Uh, after his first term, Chuck Colson ran his re-election campaign. It was highly successful. After this time, Chuck was like, man, I've, I'm only this time, he was 41 years old. He was 38 years old and the president's right-hand man. At 41, he was like, is this all there is to it? I mean, I thought I was gonna do these great things and there's an emptiness in me. And God made it so that he ran into one of his colleagues uh, in his law firm. He had this CEO of a business in Connecticut, a guy just like him, hungry, hard charger, wanted to get stuff done. He noticed there was something different about this guy. He said, man, you got a piece on you that I just never had. What happened? He said, Chuck, you're not going to believe this. He said, I accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. And that's made all the difference in my life. He said, how did this happen? Well, it started out, one of my friends gave me this book, Mere Christianity, by C.S. Lewis, who was a non-believer, came to Christ, and then became one of the best apologists for the faith. I read this book called Mere Christianity, and, and it, slowly but surely, I saw that, that I was, indeed was a sinner, that all the truths about Jesus were true, and I accepted Christ as Savior. And uh, at this particular time, uh, Colson was like, yeah, there's an emptiness in me. Let me check it out. So he read Mere Christianity. Now hold me accountable to this. I have never read Mere Christianity. I hear great things about this book. I've got to read it this year. So check with me. Check with me by September to see that I've read Mere Christianity. Yeah, check with me. Uh, all right, all right, very good. <laughs> so anyway, he read this book, and there was this one chapter um, called the, the Great Vice, and it was about pride. And said, Chuck, as soon as he read it, he's like, this is me. I'm prideful. I think I could do everything on my own. And, and within a very short period of time, Chuck pulled over on the road and accepted Christ as Savior. So the year is 1973. The Watergate charges are brewing. And Chuck is coming to terms with all the mess that he's been involved in. He was known as the president's hatchet man. <laughs> that was his moniker, the hatchet man. And so he thought about all the things that he'd done, and he's like, you know what, I know I'm guilty of some of these charges. So he went to the prosecutor and he said, listen, I'm guilty of this. No doubt, I'm not gonna fight you on this, I'm guilty. You know, I'll just accept whatever punishment you give me. So they gave him a three-year sentence, a two-year sentence, and Chuck served seven months. In the seven months in prison, he learned something really important. Uh, in his small group, there were murderers, 
car thieves and gang members in his small group in prison. Can you imagine that small group? You know, that's a different kind of group. <laughs> what he learned is that he was just as sinful as them. As he started praying with them and speaking with them about the scriptures, he came to the conclusion that he was just like them. After his seven months was over, uh, he had all kinds of different opportunities. He was disbarred in D.C., but he could go back to his home state and he could practice law. He had a million-dollar job offer. And Chuck said, no, I see a problem in these prisons. Reflecting on what he saw in prison, he said something like this. He said, I see all these bodies of men atrophying and all these souls corroding. I've got to do something about the prisons. So he had written a book. He took the royalties from the book, and he started prison fellowship ministries. What became of that one man who came to Christ? What was the, the sum game of that? Well, after about 20 years, here's what the sum was. 50,000 volunteers working in 113 countries, providing gifts to 50,000 children of, of, of parents in prison. Uh, his organization has led thousands of prisoners to Christ. And what's even more significant is that these men as, as, and women, have they, as they've left the prison, they've not gone back into prison. Uh, prison Fellowship runs about 10 or 15 prisons nationally. Here's one of the things in, on Christian-based principles. Here's one of the things they measure their success on. Recidivism, the rate of which you commit a crime and then come back and do it again, back into the system, is about 60% for most people who get released from prison. In Chuck's prisons, it's less than 10%. That, 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 that life transformation, changing the life, is what keeps people out of crime. So the miracle of a life changed by Jesus Christ is that one saved life can save thousands more. Check that out. One saved life, one transformed life can lead to the redemption of thousands more, right? Only Jesus can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that kind of a change. I want to talk to you about something, young people who are thinking about their careers and the power of the Holy Spirit. Figure out what gifts the Holy Spirit has given you, what abilities God has given you. And as you begin to put together a career and what you want to do for a living, pay attention to what it is God has given you to do. I'll, I can, I, I'll attest to this. I will never work for a living outside of using my gifts to lead and communicate. I don't do that much different pastoring here at High Point, truth be told, to what I used to do at American Family. I learned along the way that God had given me certain gifts and abilities, and I find my profession in those areas. So, young person, if you're thinking about, well, you know, what I want to do when I grow up, well, start with the inventory of what God has done, what your spiritual gifts are, as you think about what you want to do with your career. Last point I want to talk about is the Holy Spirit fills the believer with additional power as needed. When we engage in service to the Lord, he'll provide us with complementary power. This, this particular week, 
we've kind of had a very busy week at the staff, and that's an understatement at the church. It's an understatement. It's busy, right? But one of our ministers, one of the people who works for at the church, had to have a really delicate conversation with someone that could have went really wrong. And they, when they started the conversation, they didn't just know exactly how it would go or what to say, but their testimony is that while they were having that conversation, the Holy Spirit gave them just the right words to comfort the person they were talking to, just the right words to diffuse what, what could have been a very volatile situation. And that's what we see happening in Acts 4, verse 8. Um, this quote, Luke 21, 12 through 15, Jesus gave to his disciples. What he said to them is, as the time gets closer for my return, you're going to run into more and more persecution. You're going to be called in front of kings and councils to give account for me. And here's what Jesus said to them. Before all the end, before the end, they will seize you and persecute you. And you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Here's my secret prayer whenever I go to preach, if I'm thinking straight, is to pray for words and wisdom that cannot be contradicted. I hope you're getting some today. <laughs> Maybe a little. All right, Acts 4, 8 through 10. So, then Peter, after the council, imagine the Supreme Court, in this case it's 71 of the elders of Israel, scholars in Hebrew scripture, responsible for the spiritual formation of the country. He, he's brought before this council. And what, what is this that you've done? Why are you preaching in Jesus' name? How did this man get healed? And so this is how Peter responds. Luke 21 comes to light for him. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, power for the moment, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how it is that he is healed, he was right there before them. Then know this, you and the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. One of the things that a church like ours needs to uh, be on the guard for is a total dependence in our success, in our attributes, in our giftedness. You know, people look at High Point and, oh, the, it's a big church, it's a block long, and they have, you know, all kinds of talents and abilities and money. And if we focus on that kind of foolishness, we will miss the fact that we are totally dependent on God for anything that we could ever do for his kingdom. Totally dependent upon God. Amen. And so what I want you to see is that this church that was thriving fully understood that. Acts 4.23, they fully understood that they were totally dependent upon God. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, page 1661 in your Bibles, went back to their own people and reported all the, all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit, again, our word, where it comes from, where our power comes from, through, your, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations raise and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Just a note on prayer. Um, let the Word of God inspire your prayers. One of my role models for prayer is Greg Walters. Um, Greg will read the scripture, and when he comes to pray, the Word just kind of comes out uh, from him. He lets the Spirit work through the Word to bring a prayer, right? Uh, that's kind of how we want to pray. We want the Word to be so infused in us that we remember as we're going through trials what God has already said about your situation. Don't you know that whatever difficulty you're dealing with right now, some of you are dealing with some serious difficulties, in all likelihood, the Word of God has already spoken about that thing. And so as you begin to pray, remind yourself, pray what God has said and ask God to, to bring power. Now, the Lord, verse 29, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness when I think about the time at which we are doing ministry and how our laws, which were pretty well steeped in Judeo-Christian heritage around conceptions of marriage and family and behavior and how that all seems to be up for grabs now that it's all up for consideration. Let's re-talk about things that we held sacred at one point and whether they are true. What I'm suggesting to you is that right now is a time when we need to be praying for boldness. And not just for Pastor Nick or me or, or Vince or Derek or Kathleen, not just people who do ministry full time, but boldness for you. Boldness for you to stand up before people and tell the truth with kindness in your workplaces and in your community. That this is a time when we need to pray for courage and pray for boldness so that the country can continue to be sanctified and the world. This is what the gospel is about. It, re it requires us to be bold and to take risks. This is a time for us to pray for boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, I don't know in America if we need God to shake out his hands and create great miracles in order to accomplish the work that needs to be done. If, it did, if, it's, if it's needed, God will do that. But perhaps the miracle that God wants to work between us today is seen in verses 32 through verses 36. That what kind of miracles need to accompany our gospel today? What, what should the world, what should the society see about the church that would make a big difference in their willingness to come to Jesus? I think the answer is in 32 and following. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That there was this unity 
within the truth that, that, that whenever there's unity in a church, you're going to find respect for the leaders. You're going to find a faithfulness to the fundamental practices of the church. That's Acts 42. Uh, Acts 2 and 42. Respect for the leaders. Acts 5, 12 and 13. You will find respect for the leaders. You will find a commitment to fundamental things like teaching and preaching, a love for the word, communion and fellowship. You will find, and you will find something else. You'll find a joy amongst God's people. That's Acts 47. You'll find a sincere love for God, love for God's people, that when we get together and fellowship and do God's work, we're excited. There's a joy that he gives us. We ought to have good respect for uh, God's leaders. Every now and then I'll go into Nick's office when he's gone and out of town to use his bathroom. Don't tell him that. Right. <laughs> And um, every so often, I'll be struck by this one thing that he's got. He's got this whiteboard on his wall, and then right next to it, he has this document I'm going to share with you. About six or seven years ago, when we had an interim pastor, when we had an intentional interim, Pastor uh, Bill Lurch, we did this exercise where the church thought about what it wanted to be. And it created a lot of documents, but it boiled down to these seven things. And Nick keeps this on his wall. Here's what they are. Debt-free. We have about a $1.7 million mortgage. Debt-free. Missions-minded church. That's why we are going to increase the missions contributions from 10 to 11, up to 15%. Strong youth ministry. Right? That's why we focused on bringing Derek in. And in his ministry, prayer-centered church, that we want to be led by God and not by the whims of whoever's the chief poobah or the elders at the time. We want to be led by the Spirit, right? Exp expositional preaching. <laughs> One of the things on the committee that I served with David Miller, uh, David was our stalwart person in my mouth. We got to make sure that whoever we bring in here can preach the word. This is the pastor that I'm choosing for my daughters. We got to have a strong preacher. And I think we delivered on that, right? Adult discipleship. That our, our adults need to grow spiritually. And so you go in and you will have great classes for adult ed and small groups because we need people to be, to do life together. So these were the things that are on his board. And I want to suggest to you that our unity depends upon our leaders having vision and then us working, rallying around them together. Don't take that for granted, unity. The other thing that we see is generosity. I've never been in a church that's 117,000 over budget. What's kind of cool about that is that uh, something you don't know that I do know is that probably this year about $40,000 is going to go to poor people in Madison. 
Amen. That's super cool. We can do that because you guys take those yellow envelopes and put some money in there all the time. And all together, that money is up to four. And we can meet needs. We don't, we've never, this year, we have never turned down somebody who came to our doors and who was really in need. That's awesome. I've been at churches where we didn't have the ability, even when they really had a legitimate need. We couldn't, not at high point, we can meet the needs of poor people who come to the door and we got somebody who can actually counsel them that's awesome and we can give money to the mission of the church globally you should give the Lord a hand praise on that so generosity is not just that we can take care of our little bitty old knees in the church and keep our facility it's that we can take care of the community and we can invest in the global mission and we can talk about doing more of that Generosity. You're looking for a church. Look for strong, unified leadership in the truth. Look for generosity. And look for evangelistic church. And here I'm not just talking about, verse 33 says this, Acts 4 and 33. And with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the need of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let me just throw this plug in real quick for Nick. Doing his job, preaching the word well every week, is really hard. It requires a lot of study, and it requires a freshness. And he's tired now. He's tired, and so he's got a break. This summer he'll be off for about a month. And so get used to me and Vince, because <laughs> we're going to be preaching. But when you give him that time to do that, you give him time to refresh so that he can come back with power. You want your preachers to have power and courage and boldness. That's what you want. Churches that have that kind of leadership grow. You want that kind of power. Because through his preaching, and through the preaching of the word, then you will recognize that you need to go out and testify in your neighborhoods. It starts with the leaders. It starts with Christ. Goes through the Holy Spirit to his leaders, to you, who serve in the communities. So we've got to be focused on the evangelistic ministry. Maybe more focused as we look at the days ahead. So the Holy Spirit gives us the word that we live by. He is the one that appoints every member of the church by his Holy Spirit. He empowers us, all of our activities. And when we need more strength as we go out in faith to do his work, he gives us more power when we need it. And when you look at the church, when you assess how High Point is doing, you need to look for unified leadership, unified church as a whole for generosity and a missional focus. Let us pray. Lord God, um, we are in awe of what you have given us in terms of our relationship in you or for those of us who have yet to confess you, the opportunity, the awesome opportunity that we have to accept you as Lord, the awesome opportunity we have to be united in a local church, 
that is united on the fundamental things of the Word of God and fellowship and communion and discipleship that, that, that's united around these things, that believes that the Spirit is in control and empowers our activities, that, that is, is open to what you want to do, that, that allows you to set the agenda. And so, Lord, we just, uh, we, th we thank you for what the Spirit has done. We thank you for what you're showing us in these early books and acts and pray that our church will look more and more like the blueprint that you have established for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.